October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast, episode number 24, The First Missionaries. Last time, we talked about James White's new spark of energy in California, where he founded a new paper called Signs of the Times, and a new publishing house called Pacific Press. We also talked about how Ellen White became a pretty popular speaker among groups promoting temperance reform in America and in Europe. And we wrapped up the episode talking about J.N. Andrews's selection to be the church's first official missionary to Europe and James and Ellen's marital troubles through the 1870s. But we're going to begin today by saying goodbye to somebody we haven't heard from in about 20 years, Joseph Bates. Joseph Bates contented himself to the background of the movement after he more or less passed on the reins to James back around 1850. Since then, it had definitely been James's church, and Bates happily supported James. The fact that Bates moved to Monterey, Michigan, and not Battle Creek like the believers there wanted him to, pretty much symbolized how Bates saw his own role within the church. When James wanted to organize, Bates dutifully went from church to church, urging them to do just that. Now, that didn't mean that Bates slowed down much. He still excelled at persuasion through conversation. In 1868, Bates wrote his autobiography, and the royalties were essentially his retirement income. In 1869, just a year later, Bates was preaching to 600 to 700 convicts in the Michigan State Prison. And a couple of years after that, in 1871, he preached more than a hundred times. James kept telling him just to slow down and take it easy, but that's a little bit like the pot calling the kettle black, isn't it? Bates's wife, Prudence, died on a Sabbath in August 1870. She had been late in agreeing with her husband's views, but when she came on board, she stayed on board the whole way. They were married for 52 years, and Prudy, as Joseph called her, was 77 years old. Bates himself would carry on for another year and a half. In February of 1872, Ellen White heard that Bates had barely been eating, she rounded on him strongly in the letter, telling him that God wasn't pleased that he was starving himself. She told him, like she always told her own husband, to stop and rest. She was more than strong, too. She point-blank told him that, quote, God loves you, but with your advanced age and your strong peculiarities, you will certainly mar the work of God more than you can help it, end quote. Ouch. But Ellen knew that Bates was strong-willed, and he'd shrug off mere suggestions and advice. And for his part, Bates responded in good form. He said, quote, I learned from your report that I am starving, end quote. In true Bates fashion, he then itemized the food he had in his house and gently reminded her that he had been in the health reform business much, much longer than her. Joseph Bates died at the Western Health Reform Institute on March 19, 1872. His last general conference session had filled him with hope as he saw all that was being accomplished in the 1870s. After his death, the Michigan Conference passed a resolution in tribute with the highest praise. The 1873 general conference session did the same thing the next year. 
James White said, From my first acquaintance with him, I have loved him much. And the more I see of his devotedness to the Holy Advent cause, his caution, his holy life, his unfeigned love for the saints, the more I love and esteem him. Ellen White would remark over the next few years how much people she met reminded her of Joseph Bates. Bates was in so many ways so far ahead of the rest of the movement. After he handed over the reins in 1850, the movement took years and even decades to catch up to what he was already doing. He could pretty much just sit out the last 22 years of his life and still be ahead of much of the rest of the church. He was first in health reform, in promoting abolition, in understanding the Sabbath. He wasn't just the father of the movement. He was really the grandfather, too. And there would have been no church without Joseph Bates. And even though he's been pretty quiet since episode number nine, you can't help but miss the guy. So long, and thanks for all the fish. Before we walk away from the subject of leaders in the church, we have to talk about one other leader and his ideas about leaders, George Ida Butler. In Butler's mind, James White was the once and future king, and Butler was simply Camelot's caretaker. This was at one of those times where people had doubts about James White's integrity yet again. An Adventist with the preposterous name of Walcott Hackley Littlejohn was a forceful personality, arguing that James White was a fine, fine leader, but a leader who might be tempted into being a bit of a dictator. And that much was fair, as we've said before. A lot of the grumbling against James wasn't that he actually did something wrong, but that he had the potential to do something wrong. And Little John wanted to go a step further. Not only did James have the potential to be a dictator, but he should be questioned by anyone who thought that they had reason to doubt his integrity. We've talked about how certain parties in the church would go from liking James to whispering about him, only to confess that they had been wrong and then go back to liking him again. This happened in the early 70s with a vengeance. And at one time, James's relationship with like half of the leadership of the church seemed strained. And George Butler was going to help fix this problem. So Butler wrote an essay on leadership, arguing that the Seventh-day Adventist church needed one man at the helm, and no matter who held the office of president, that person should listen to James White. It's a little like saying that even though Bill Gates has retired from Microsoft, the CEO of Microsoft should still listen to anything Gates has to say because Bill Gates built that company with his own hands. James White had been in and out of the presidency, and Butler wanted everyone to know that whether James was the church's official leader or not, he was still the church's leader. Butler tied the official administration of the church to James White and it would be hard to criticize one without criticizing the other. Now, Butler wasn't a sycophant, but he believed two things. Butler believed that God called James White to be a leader in the church, and Butler believed that the church was weaker when people were complaining about James. He was tired of it. The church needed to realize that the Bible called for strong leadership in the church, and that's what his essay set out to demonstrate. Now, technically, Butler's essay was about leadership in general, but it's simply impossible not to read it as a defense of James White as well. 
So I'm going to put James's name into Butler's essay so we can read it as the early Adventists certainly would have understood it. So here's a few of Butler's points. The members needed to have a jealous interest for James's reputation because if James is slandered, then the church is slandered. The church members needed to put aside murmuring and complaint to listen to James when he tells us that we're going off course because to disobey the duly elected leader is to disobey scripture. And the members also need to cheerfully admit James's authority to reprove and rebuke them according to the light that God gives him. Now, Butler knew how this sounded, and people like Little John, who was a good guy, by the way, would cry out that James White was the Adventist Pope, and that the church was worshiping a man, blah, blah. Butler dismissed it all out of hand. Popery, he said, claims supreme control over men's consciences. Nothing of the kind is claimed in these principles. Members still had the right to refuse James White on the grounds of conscience. But, short of that, the church had better get in line behind the leader God allowed to lead the church. And if you're thinking that Butler sees the church in need of some kind of military discipline, you wouldn't be far off. He concluded his essay by saying that the church needed to become a well-drilled army with each officer and private in his place, and Christ our captain over all and above all, giving us the victory. Butler looked at the Union Army in the Civil War as an example. I mean, the Union got smacked around in the first months of the war because it didn't have a strong leader until Grant showed up. It was an example every Adventist over the age of 12 would have understood perfectly. And the General Conference voted unanimously to adopt Butler's thoughts as the church's official position on leadership. The General Conference also had Butler's thoughts publish. Pastors began to preach on leadership, drawing from Butler's ideas. All the while, only two people really had a problem with Butler's shiny new thoughts on leadership. And of all people, they were named James and Ellen White. James could have handled this a bit more diplomatically, but come on, we're done with that disclaimer by now. He started publishing his own ideas on leadership in the Signs of the Times and eventually the Review. Ellen White summed up the problem by telling Butler that it's not that his principles were wrong, but his application of them. Butler gave James too much power, in her opinion. She wrote that God never designed that his work should bear the stamp of one man's mind and one man's judgment. Butler meant well but he elevated James so high in hopes of crushing the constant pot shots people took at James that he ended up giving people a new reason to complain. Look at James. He thinks he's at the right hand of God up there. James immediately wrote to the church that he never believed himself to be the church's de facto leader. Yes, someone needed to lead the church until it could be organized, but now you guys have a general conference and state conferences and all of that. The church, and Butler, took all of this well. They agreed to modify Butler's essay to soften the parts that elevated James a bit too much. But the love for James White was undiminished, and someone suggested naming the college in Battle Creek after him. And, of course, James said, No thanks.
James loved the college in Battle Creek that he had helped to save, but he didn't love it because it was a college. He and Ellen had really wanted it to train preachers and other workers for the church, but the rest of the church just wanted it to be a full college. The Adventists in Battle Creek had a lot of kids, and they understandably wanted to send them to an Adventist school. Now, I need to add that by college, it really just covered a lot of grades and high school as well as what we would consider college. It was a very loose term. From the start, the college struggled to meet Ellen White's expectations. She was in line with certain educational reformers of her day who wanted schools to teach less Greek and Latin and focus more on character development and practical instruction. Ellen wanted training and skills so students could learn a good trade while they were studying. Oberlin College in Ohio was, of course, the very definition of this kind of reform. When the Millerites were still working their way through 1844, Oberlin had graduated its first black student, a lawyer who later went on to help found Howard University. Other colleges followed suit, some making the Bible one of their main textbooks. And Ellen White wanted more of that and a little less Plato. What she got from the Battle Creek College was Plato, with the promise that someday they could, you know, do what she wanted. Goodloe Harper Bell, who started the school in the first place, was perhaps the only other person to appreciate what Ellen White was trying to do. He had attended Oberlin and had worked on campus and learned skills, but Bell's voice was drowned out because he didn't have a college degree. So let's just pause right here and give Bell some love because he started this baby and then it was taken from him and in a radically different direction. There's a danger of interpreting Ellen White's educational vision in light of the fundamentalist turn of the early 1900s. And when we talk about making the Bible a textbook at the school, we're not talking about learning English from the Bible and ignoring all of their literature. We're not talking about learning chemistry from the Bible, however that works, and ignoring the scientific community. She was adamant that students be taught the most current ideas in their field, but more importantly, to teach them how to think for themselves. This is how Ellen White opened her essay on education. Our ideas of education take too narrow and too low a range. There is need of a broader scope, a higher aim. True education means more than the pursuit of a certain course of study. It means more than a preparation for the life that now is. It has to do with the whole being and with the whole period of existence possible to man. It is the harmonious development of the physical, mental, and spiritual powers. It prepares the student for the joy of service in this world and for the higher joy of wider service in the world to come. Further in her essay, she clarified this vision for education. This is what she said. It is the work of true education to train the youth to be thinkers and not mere reflectors of other men's thought. Instead of educated weaklings, institutions of learning may send forth men strong to think and to act, men who are masters and not slaves of circumstances, men who possess breadth of mind, clearness of thought, and the courage of their convictions. Ellen White wasn't a Bible-thumping fundamentalist who railed against science. 
She didn't even believe that the Bible was verbally inspired. That is, that every word in your Bible was specifically chosen by God. What Ellen White wanted was education that shapes the Christian character. I mean, what's the purpose of a Christian school? If a student is educated to be a great chemist, but never gives up their pride or their lust or their coveting, how have you really prepared them for life then? School wasn't just a way to help people get a job, but to equip them to live as good citizens, as good employees, as good husbands, and yes, of course, as good Christians. Now, the school board understood all of this, and they were sympathetic to Ellen White. But the guy who replaced Bell as the leader of the school was a classically trained teacher, you know, Plato, and they really didn't want to lose him. Ellen White's reform ideas were just a little bit ahead of their time for the church. Now, in the beginning, Ellen White's vision was just way out of their reach. Battle Creek College was a day school, and there were simply few qualified Adventist administrators and teachers to run it the way that she wanted. Almost no one had experience in the kind of school that Ellen White wanted. James wanted students to learn foreign languages and techniques to spread the Adventist message, but few students were interested, and none of the administrators knew how to organize such a program. It's easy to say that the school should do this or that, but it's a little harder to build that kind of program. And to be fair, vocational training programs were easy to do with smaller schools. There were simply way too many students, though, in this case, who didn't live on campus, and it was too small of a campus at that, to set up some sort of industry. Now, I know what you're thinking. How was making these changes so hard if James White was the head of the college? Well, James did help bring the college's debt under control, but he was really the head and name only for most of the 70s. His attention, as we've seen, is really in California, and before long he was editing both the Review and the Science of the Times. And even still, James isn't known to bail out when it comes to taking charge. But the reality in this case is that James just didn't feel like he was qualified to run the school. The school had a rough start, but not rough enough to make James reconsider taking control. Students protested from time to time, the curriculum was a mess, but enrollment numbers were good, and the church was getting more highly educated leaders from it. Battle Creek College was a good learning experience. A learning experience of a different kind was in store for John Nevins Andrews. We talked last time about how the General Conference voted to send him as the church's official missionary to Europe in 1874. Andrews was a good choice, of course. He and Uriah Smith were the resident scholars of the church. And when Andrews shipped off, Ellen White told the European believers that we have sent you the ablest man in our ranks. If he hadn't gone to Europe, Andrews probably would have been teaching at the college. But Andrews was going with a weight of sadness. His wife had died of a stroke two years before, at the young age of 48. And though James had no special affection for Angeline Andrews, it must have sent chills down his spine as he struggled to recover from his own strokes. J.N. Andrews picked up the pieces and felt even stronger about his Adventist mission. Time was short, and he would do all he could to get the word out. And when the word came to go to Europe, the single father took his two children with him. 
He initially spent some time in England among the Seventh-day Baptists. And in case I haven't said this before, let me just say that over the past 10 years or so, Seventh-day Baptists and Seventh-day Adventists had grown close. When each denomination held a general conference meeting, the other would send an honorary delegate to observe the meeting and pay their respects. So Andrews' stop to see the believers there in England was yet another pleasant courtesy between the two churches. After England, Andrews headed to Switzerland, where Tchaikovsky's converts were eagerly awaiting him. And of course, Andrews had to learn French, which he did over the next few years, it seems, without much difficulty. He published notices in the newspapers of Central Europe for any Christians who believed in the Seventh-day Sabbath or just wanted to know more about it to write him and they can talk about it. Andrews had arrived and his impact was immediate. The newspaper paid off when he learned that there were Sabbath keepers in southern Germany, and Andrews dispatched a German-speaking believer from Switzerland to work among them. The first German Seventh-day Adventists were being ripened. Meanwhile, reinforcements were sent in the person of Daniel T. Bordeaux, who arrived just in time to help Andrews found a French-language newspaper called The Signs of the Times after the paper of the same name, which James, of course, had founded in Oakland not too long ago. And, of course, both James and Andrews stole that name from an old Millerite paper from back in the day, and, yep, still not big on originality, but I guess there's something to be said about continuity. Bordeaux preached in France, and eventually Italy, while Andrews responded to the flood of letters he was getting because of his newspaper ads. The goodwill between Seventh-day Baptists and Adventists was so strong that the Baptists sent an Irish doctor who was living in Naples to Andrews to learn more about the Sabbath, since Andrews was closer to Naples than the English Seventh-day Baptists. The doctor immediately won over 20 people in Naples, who in turn started an Italian paper called, wait for it, The Signs of the Times, which reached all the way to the Italians living in Alexandria, Egypt. Now, this is a curious note of history, because the believers in Alexandria really caught on, and so the Irish doctor moved from Naples to Alexandria. And we really wish we could have seen where that would have gone, but sadly, he and some of his converts were killed in anti-European riots, which saw the European quarter of the city burned to the ground. You can thank the British and the French for that one. Reinforcements poured into Europe from America, too. J.G. Madison took charge of Scandinavia, especially Norway. He, too, started a paper which was called the Advent Gazette. So props to Madison for being his own man there. Except, wait, he established a printing house in Oslo to print a little number he called Signs of the Times. Oh, well. William Ings, an Englishman who worked for the Review, was sent back home as a missionary in 1878. John Loughborough and his wife soon followed to work in England. Australia was finally reached in 1885 by Stephen Haskell, one of the pioneers we really haven't talked much about so far. He too went on to publish Signs of the Times there. Anyway, this is getting a little ahead of ourselves, but I just wanted us to see how quickly Adventists caught on to the idea of a global mission. Other than the whites, 
the church really sent their best preachers abroad at a time when they were still sorely needed back on the home front. They fully understood Jesus' words that the harvest was ready, but the workers were few. The 70s were a pivotal decade in the Seventh-day Adventist church. The school system began with a college in Battle Creek. The medical system began with a hospital there. Missionaries were beginning to be sent around the globe. And, as we said before, it was a time when so many of the next generation of preachers and leaders came into the church. But the old had to make way for the new, as Joseph Bates and J.N. Andrews' wife died in that decade. And two other big names would follow them out in the early 1880s. But on the whole, the decade was an exciting time to be an Adventist. Andrews returned home in 1878, and his daughter Mary died in Battle Creek despite Kellogg's best efforts to save her. Andrews was heartbroken again. His first European tour had crushed his own health as well, and he needed rest. But boy, the women in his life seemed ill-fated. 1879 found Andrews giving the best sermon of his life, by all accounts. The occasion was the dedication of the Fourth Adventist Church to be built in Battle Creek, and the most famous of them all, the Dime Tabernacle. It was so named because Edson White came up with the idea that if every Adventist would just save one dime each month for a year, basically a dollar and twenty cents, then they could build a church to meet the needs of of a growing organization. The Dime was a monster of a church. It could hold over 3,000 people, which was insane when you consider we're talking about the 1870s here. And Andrews filled it with a summary of what it meant to be a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. This house, Andrews said in his dedicatory sermon, has been erected by a people that believe that the commandments of God are all sacredly binding, and that they are not changed by the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that the period through which God's commandments have been trampled underfoot is marked in prophecy, and that we have come to that time when their restoration is to take place. We believe that the work is entrusted to the people now on earth, and we ask all who are here present to participate in this sacred work. This house has been erected in the hope that it will be the means of turning many to the testimonies of God and leading them to pay attention to the grand event which we believe is impending, the judgment and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Andrews took his sermon theme from the large windows behind the pulpit. The glass of the left pane proclaimed mankind's salvation by faith alone. The center depicted the Ten Commandments, and the right pane of glass described the final generation, characterized by keeping the commandments of God and having the faith of Jesus. Even the church they built proclaimed the message of Seventh-day Adventists. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist History content, then go subscribe to Adventist History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Adventist History Project. You can get access to Adventist History Extra on the website, which is AdventistHistoryProject.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. 
adventistmedia.com. Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.